Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. You may know Adam Smith as the father of capitalism. For those of us working in the intersection of business and law, however, the name immediately brings to mind Adam Smith Esquire, a long-running blog on the economics of law firms. Today's guests are Bruce McEwen and Janet Stanton, president and partner, respectively, of Adam Smith Esquire, which is also, by the way, a consultancy serving law firms. Together, Bruce and Janet combine their wealth of experience in economics, business, and law to help firms better prepare for tomorrow. Interestingly, after not knowing what to expect going into the pandemic, they have found their business booming over the last year as firms grappled with the fallout and people adapted to a new way of working. Join us for a conversation about how 2020 differs from the economic consequences of the 2008 Great Recession, the potential fallout from the Cambrian explosion of the pandemic, and what big firms offer that clients are willing to pay top dollar for. Janet, Bruce, great to see you guys. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Well, it's our great pleasure to be here. How has life been for you in a virtual world over the last year or so? I would say there was obviously intense anxiety at the very beginning. I mean, New York City, where we are based, and where we've been for 15 months now was hit obviously very, very hard. And it was, you know, there was a, there was a high degree of anxiety being, you know, speaking as uh, one of the two partners in Adam Smith Esquire, um, there was a lot of anxiety about whether our business would hold up or we'd just have to wait it out until things came back. Yeah, we sat down like the third week of March when you could still sit down with people and I said, we have to count that all of our revenue will go away this year. And, you know, again, because we're kind of a, an economic indicator of the legal industry, as law firms do better, we did better. And law firms had a, as you know, a bang up year. So we ended up also having a bang up year. Let's pick up on that. There are a couple of threads on there I want to pull because you guys talked about sort of the, the the panic and the terror that we all encountered it you know this time or a little earlier last year and certainly you saw it with law firms generally i'm sure you saw it with your clients you know what what is going to happen here you know that fear modeled it and then as you go through the year you're right law firms had a bang up year bruce i want to come a little bit later to the article you posted this morning about some of the financial analysis but let's stay with sort of the psychic toll and and now we're at a moment where there's light at the end of the tunnel there's vaccinations people are talking about what's next from you guys perspective either one of you what should law firms have learned from this past 12 to 14 months of experience. And do you think those learnings are going to be sticky? Boy, I I really, really, I mean, the fact that uh, Lawland responded as quickly and as competently as they did to work from home, I hope is a big lesson for law firms. Yes, people can do things, people can change. And I hope they take that change mindset forward. 
I also was impressed, and I think Bruce was too, that the response to this recession was much more intelligent than the response to the 08-09 recession, where there were a lot of knee-jerk reactions, letting people go. In, the, in that last recession, you never heard the word furlough before, but I think firms were, first of all, they responded fantastically in getting work from home set up. And number two, they were very thoughtful about the changes they needed to make and they were also keeping an eye not only on the, you know, in a crisis, cash is king. You have to, you know, make sure you're maximizing that, but also thinking long term what implications there might be for their reputations if they did things too rashly. And they, as a rule, tended not to do that this time. Surprisingly, Steve, if I can jump in, I'm going to be a little less optimistic than Janet. I think the pivot to working from home was, I mean, what choice did you have? As one of our favorite managing partners said, it was like the fire alarm went off, everybody out, and then, you know, figure it out from there. Two trends were accelerated, just talking about the economics of the business. One, I think clients got even more pickier about which law firms they used for what in a time of you know, sky-high uncertainty, in many cases, money is no object, and I get that, and that's rational by clients. But there are only so many law firms that have the luxury of being in a money-is-no-object market. The second thing, very quickly, Janet talked about the 08-09 recession, which put new law on the map. I mean, Axiom, for example, was it was not on anybody's radar before, and it has been ever since. This recession, I think, will just be the second or third booster stage to, to new law. And that plays back into the first thing I said, if you're not a highly differentiated law firm, I would be more worried than I was a year ago. Well, there are a bunch of threads in there I want to I want to pull on a lot a lot of stuff to unpack on what you both just said, Janet. Let's let let's start with the point you made, and, and you slightly disagree. And I I confess I come a little bit down on the Bruce side in terms of the movement to work from home. And I I want to come back to some things because Bruce, you wrote an article about uh, office space a few months ago, and I want to come back to that. But I want to pick up on the point you made, which is the treatment of the people you saw in big law and how that differed from 08, because I saw the same thing and I thought that was remarkable. To what do you attribute that difference? Did law firms actually learn from the 08? When I experience, is it a different generation of managers? Is it the health implications that this was a different cause for a recession and you saw the furlough of people keeping health benefits. Maybe it's all of the above. What, to what do you attribute that difference in treatment? I, I think it's two things. Number one, the 0809 recession was still in everybody's memory. It was kind of a perfectly timed new recession because we remembered what happened in 0809. And people have been seeing the implications of, for example, you know, Xing out classes of associates. So that that is, I think there was tremendous learning about the 0809. And I and I think it also was a different kind of recession. This was not a financial recession. This, I mean, the economy was humming, lawland was humming. And the fact that it was this very scary disease, I think, also had people thinking that they needed to be you know, kinder and gentler and with their workforce. And we saw that in in people working from home, you know, having, you know, the, the managing partners and leaders, you know, having regular meetings and that kind of thing. I think it's those two reasons. 
Bruce, you, you, you see it the same way? I don't want to overestimate the economic sophistication of even high-end law firms in their analysis, but Janet said it. The 0809 recession was a financial crisis. The a lot of capital markets were on the verge of collapse. Obviously, major financial institutions went away. And as Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhardt have demonstrated to a fairly well, and this time is different. When you have a financial crisis, it's like taking the oil out of your car engine and expecting to go, you know, 100 miles an hour. It's just not going to turn out well. But and it lasts a long time. This recession was all the governments in the world slammed on the brakes. And that gives them there was nothing fundamentally wrong with no. me, in other words. But people were told, you know, you don't have a job because there are no restaurants, there are no bars, there are no museums, there's no tourism. But you can switch your foot from the brake to the accelerator, as governments have done worldwide. And I think the economy is going to be like shot out of a cannon this year. We're already seeing signs of it. I think that's right. The uncertainty, as we go back a year ago, everybody was talking about how long will this last? We'll be out of it in the summer. We'll be out of it in the fall. They're talking about a V-shaped recovery. That uncertainty sort of had, I think, cut both ways. One, it created a, a level of fear as to what's going to happen to our business. But did it also sort of shorten the time frame that people, I mean, in the 08, 09 recession, businesses just seized up. I think the analogy of oil in the, in the engine is, is the right one. In this one, I think law firms, and I'm curious as to whether you agree, also wanted to keep track of their people and keep connection with their people because they thought it was going to turn around faster than it wind up, wound up turning around. Did you have the same experience with your clients? Yeah, we did. And, and there was an effort to stay in contact. And I think, I mean, I am more optimistic or, or laudatory than Bruce is about the work from home because it wasn't just the setting up of the technology. People adopted it. People acclimated to it very, very quickly. And that, I think, is going to be a challenge for the coming out process. A lot of people don't like commuting, as it turns out. But I do think there was a concerted effort to stay in touch with people, maintain connections, because, you know, one of the challenges for a remote is is maintaining, you know, the cultural glue, the and, and especially, and there was a big concern, which I thought was well-placed, for, you know, younger lawyers who you know, have not yet developed their full Rolodexes and, and connections. So I think there was a greater degree of concern for uh, staying connected. Well, let me add one quick gloss to what Janet said about people adapting. I would emphasize it was the human beings who adapted, right? I mean, it actually was not the firms. The, the firms were not, they did not have a hand on the tiller at that point. They had no choice. But to to Janet's point about adapting, you know, I was a securities deal lawyer on Wall Street when I practiced, and there was a widespread common wisdom early on in the pandemic that you couldn't do deals unless everybody, 35 people were in a conference room. That lasted about eight weeks, and we had a bang up, bang up here in deals. But that wasn't, you know, the managing partners of Kirkland and Latham figuring it out. 
it was the bankers and lawyers figuring it out. And, and, I, and I also want to bring up another thing that I think has that that may uh, the work from home may open. I mean, you never thought about. I mean, we know firms that have hired people who who aren't near any of their offices now. The whole notion of walls and limits has, in large part, gone away, and I think that's good. I mean, so if a if a lawyer needs to work with another lawyer on a on a on a matter, it's not just who's down the hall, but who's the best person in the platform because they are easy as easily accessible now as walking down the hall, and I think that's a good thing. Which brings up an existential point you alluded to earlier, Steve. What is an office for? Well, I think that's right. And you wrote an interesting article on that, Bruce. It's posted on your website. I encourage everybody listening to go read it. And for me, the I guess the question I have for you guys is this all makes sense. And I actually agree that the business was sort of yanked into this virtual world unwillingly. And people adapted and show it works. We'll talk about economic consequences here in a minute. But you can see the economic value in a more virtual workplace. But how do you account for the and, and your argument about what's an office for? You know, being collaboration is, you know, I think spot on. But how do you account for the emotional component of this? And the emotional component cuts both ways. You have, and Janet, you sort of touched on it, the culture, the people ought to be in the office. I need to be able to see them. It's not irrational, but it's an emotional component to it. And the flip side is, wait a minute. I'm not getting in a bus to go downtown. You know, I've got kids. I've shown this can work. You know, I don't need. So that emotion cuts both ways. And law firms make decisions. Emotional emotions are a real variable in there. Do you agree with that? And if so, how do you account for that as you think about what's next? I think, well, let's separate the world into two personality types, which is as simplistic as I intended it to be. You've got introverts and extroverts, and the introverts presumably are going to say, yeah, I don't need the bus. I don't need the subway. What good, you know, did it do me to see those people anyway? And the extroverts are going to say, I, yeah, I want to go have a drink after work, you know, with my buddies downstairs. But seriously, Steve, I think there will be a spectrum is all I'm saying. But I think the real answer to your question about the economic impact of virtual work, let me just give you two answers. Number one, Offices will get smaller. They will just take up less real estate. They won't disappear, but it'll never be all hands on deck five days a week like 18 months ago. It'll be something in the middle and they'll be redesigned as leases expire and there won't be cubes with laptops. The second economic implication Janet hit on before, what if geography really goes away? We're talking to you in Chicago and we're in Manhattan. And, you know, we could all be at a conference table. It's, mm -hmm. it's no different. So if geography goes away, what I mean by that is what happens to, to housing patterns? What happens to tax patterns? What happens to compensation? You know, so we're living in New York and you in Chicago, and those are uh, expensive zip codes. What about Coeur d'Alene, Idaho? If you move to Coeur d'Alene, do we pay you less? Have you tried to buy a house in Coeur d'Alene recently? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not New York, but it's uh, it's expensive. But yeah, your but, point, but your point's right. It's it's. Do you take into account those cost of living variables, or do you say, well, you know, you're a fourth year associate, so you're worth what a fourth year associate is is worth, and if you want to move to Labrador, be my guest. 
I, I do want to get back to something that Steve said about the emotional component and being a card carrying introvert. I, you know, there's a great benefit in in being around people you're working with, building ideas, you know, just collaborating in 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 person. And I think there is something lost in not having that. That the social component of being in an office is part of getting dressed up, not wearing pajamas every day. I mean, it's it's it does feed into sort of the emotional well-being of people. Uh, I, I agree with that. How does the law firm evaluate sort of what the, it's a, this is a talent business, right? And oh. if you can't attract quality people, you're not going to be in business very long. And we're now at a moment where you've got people who don't want to come back in the office. You have people who do want to come back in the office. How do you assess the impact of these decisions on your ability to attract and retain talent at all levels, allied professionals, lawyers, Etc. I think well, the, I think we we're, we're going to figure it out. This is a massive socioeconomic psychic experiment on the scale of which we've never pulled off before. But I think the real answer is to begin with transparency with people about what management knows and what it doesn't know, and and to some extent, not totally, but. Because client, you know, demands are, you know, inviolable and so forth. But to some extent, take a hands-off approach. And I'm reminded of the brilliant insight in college campus architecture years ago that you should not design paths to begin with. Build the buildings and see see where the dirt appears, and that's where you build the paths because th those are the has people are taking. So something like that analogously has got to work. But I think people, I also think people in the long run anyway, are savvy about their own best interests. And this is of course, Adam Smith and all the nations. But I think if people realize, well, you know, I really need to go to the office for a couple of days this week, they're going to do it. Yeah, I think that's right. How will client demands change in this respect? I mean, it used to be you got on an airplane, you go to a client side, you take them out to dinner. You know, clients have moved to a virtual world as well. How does that client relationship work in a different environment? It's a challenge. I mean, there's no no question about it. And I mean, we would fly, you know, for a two hour meeting in Chicago and fly back. You know, we're not doing that. And we, and we likely will never do that again. You know, people are going to find different ways of working, of connecting, of staying connected. I just want to recall a point I made earlier that there really has to be a focus on the younger lawyers and the younger partners because they're in a vulnerable position. And I hope that firms do what they can to help them build their, their networks, their connections, because that is what sustains, you know, we all have our Rolodexes and it has sustained our, our careers for quite a long time. You want them to have that same kind of opportunity. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And one challenge to that is building that network is going to look differently than it did for those of us that grew up at a different time in a different place. And do you think the more senior lawyers have the experience, they're learning it too? Right. And so teaching it to the younger lawyers is going to be an interesting trick. Yeah. Mentoring, I think, is 
becoming even more important than it has been in the past. I mean, teaching, you know, the younger folks, you know, what they need to do, how they need to do it, working it out. And I think to Bruce's point, being honest, saying, you know, we're all kind of figuring this out right now. I mean, it's a little bit like the Cambrian explosion. And I hope there are lots of ways that people do things and share their learning and ultimately end up with better ways of working that are satisfactory to the individuals and will help them grow their businesses. Yeah, I think your point's a good one. The transparency point, I think, is a good one. And I think embedded in that is the point that people have to say, we're not putting a line in the sand right now that it will always look this way. We learn, we adapt, we modify. Right. Because I think people, particularly lawyers and and, and your key allied professionals, want to know that you're willing to learn from your mistakes and you're willing to listen and you're willing to try to adapt. Yeah, I think that's especially necessary for any type of leadership. And we're not just talking about people who are running firms, but we, we look at, you know, leaders at every level. And they are the people who can influence positively, you know, how things go forward. But that idea that, hey, you know, we're all a little more humble and we're all learning and we're doing it together. And the fact that you've seen people's homes and dogs running in and out and kids running in and out, it's kind of made people a bit more human. And I think that's not a bad thing at all. The jury's out as to whether we're more humble, but your point about- <laughs> Should be. Uh, should be, should be. The point, the point about seeing people in their own environment and, and personalizing them more, I think is a fabulous point. Back to the point about sort of at what level is the decision-making going forward about how we all work? Where is that decision going to be? Who has the decision power? And I suggest a little humility at the top goes a long way. Maybe a paralegal has a great idea. Maybe there was a firm we worked with for years where the receptionist was one of their secret weapons. She was so fabulous with clients. And... I think that, well, let me go out on a limb again economically. Firms are going to try different things, right? But some things are going to work better than others. Back to Janet's Cambrian explosion. And if firms can capitalize on what works and not be control freaks, I think they're they're going to pull ahead. Yeah, I think that's right. You, you wrote an article, you posted it today, the day we were talking, looking at the economics of the AMLAW 100. And pull that apart a little bit for me, Bruce. Both, I want to talk about expenses, but let's start with revenue. You sort of made the illusion, which you made in your article about clients flocking to the reassurance factor. Yeah. So, you know, Janet and I have struggled with, I've struggled with this. I won't speak for Janet for years. What, what is value in the eyes of clients? And we did some research and Janet led the way on this. And it turns out Bain published a fabulous article a few years ago, the client value pyramid. And there are like 30 components of value potentially, and not every firm offers all of them. But one of the big ones that law firms must offer is reassurance. And we've to understate it, we've been through the biggest year of uncertainty probably any of us have ever lived through. And reassurance, there's a premium on where can you get reassurance. And unfortunately, you're not going to get it from the solo practitioner on Main Street. It's not where it's coming from. You're going to get it from 
Paul Weiss and Davis Polk and the firms on in the article that vastly outperformed their peers because back to something I said earlier, money is no object when it comes to, to reassurance. I don't see that gulf that just got wider in 2020 results shrinking. It, it, it doesn't, I don't understand why the market dynamics would ever call for that gulf to shrink. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. How do you assess the, uh, looking at the overall performance, there's the revenue side, but then there's also the expense side. And the pandemic took a lot of expenses out of the business. Is this a one-time, I mean, certainly at that level, God willing, this is a one-time event. We don't go through something like this again. But how do you assess the impact of expenses and, and how law firms are going to begin building back their expense base? Yeah, two big components of spending have been changed permanently, as far as the eye can see, in my opinion, Steve. One is real estate. It, there was a step change down in the asset value of real estate. I mean, the 45-story office buildings lining 6th Avenue in the 50s in Manhattan, they were worth, you know, X 18 months ago. They're worth two-thirds of X or half of X or God knows what. But if they're not worth more than X, that's for damn sure. And that will be reflected in rent. It's the way these markets work. And, and law firms will also be renting fewer square feet. So that's going to go down permanently. And the law firms happen to be on the winning side of that trade and the landlords on the losing. But the other big component of expense, which is going to go up a lot, is technology. And that's fine with me. And I'll tell you why. Rent is pouring cash into the ocean. You spend it and it's gone. It is pure consumption. Technology, if you do it right, is an investment. And it gives you increased capability. Nicer offices don't really give you increased capability. But better technology, more collaborative, faster, more secure, etc., does give you more capability. And I just hope that firms are not, not reluctant to invest in themselves and dissuaded by partners who say, you know, but that's my money you're spending. Well, I think we're going to see, I think as we've often seen, Bruce, there's there's a segmented response. There's not a monolithic response. Averages, as we all know, are highly deceptive. And again, we are seeing increasing segmentation in lawland, and that will continue. And, and our research is that the firms that are doing better tend to be better run as businesses. So I think in terms of looking at expenses, looking at real estate, looking at travel, looking at all those conferences, I think there'll be a kind of a bifurcated response in the industry and the firms that are more, more business oriented will take a sharper pencil to those things and decide what is necessary and what is not necessary, be it real estate, be it you know traveling to clients, and I think other firms maybe who are not as thoughtful may kind of try to go back to the way it was. But I think there will not be a monolithic response. It's going to be interesting how that plays out. That's an excellent point. And it goes to sort of the, the original point we're talking about. What do you learn from this experience? And if you're thoughtful about it, you can learn a lot from this experience. Bruce, you, you made a point. I want to come back to it about 
the pandemic accelerating some of the trends, particularly new law. And let, let's sort of break that into a few components because some of the pre-existing trends, technology is one of them, the axioms of the world were another one, the big four moving into to the legal profession was another. Do you guys see these, I, I take it from your prior response, you see this being yet another booster to those pre-existing trends. What, what do you all see and how do you see it playing out? Well, I will, I will make a prediction that, and then I will confess complete bafflement on one topic, Steve. My prediction is, is really that, that this is the chance for new law to put itself on the map. Bill Henderson published an interesting article last week about comparing new law today to the car industry around 1910 or 1920. At one point, there were hundreds and hundreds of car manufacturers in the United States. And obviously, uh, it's essentially came down to three, and in fairly short order, I might add. It didn't take a century. It took maybe a decade. And, and different types of cars. They weren't all the same type of That's car. They're not the same technology. Gas. But the analogy that I think the point Bill was making was there's a ton of new law companies now. There really are. There's a whole menagerie out there. And why is that? And why were there so many auto companies a century ago? because the opportunity is pretty damned obvious to everybody. Law firms have tremendous built-in inefficiencies. You ought to be able to wring out some of that and, and deliver something better, faster, cheaper. The problem is with the car companies then, and Bill was implying with, and I totally subscribe to this, I had the, my thought myself years ago, what the car companies then and the new law companies today are missing is what does the client really need? They may have the whizziest technology or, you know, back office in India. That's nice, but what are clients buying? What do they really need? And that's where most car companies got it wrong. And most new law companies, I'm sad to say, are going to get it wrong. But as a cohort, new law is going to take share from law firms in a big way. Continue to, yes. So my bafflement is how so many law firms continue to survive and be so profitable when they are not distinctive and they are not a source of reassurance. Well, perhaps it goes back to the point you made earlier about reassurance that as you're going to see them, where will the share of new law come from, from those law firms perhaps that don't provide that level of reassurance or sort of psychic protection that you saw in the numbers play out? this year? Yeah, understanding that legal expertise is is generally very low on the list of what clients value, what they view as distinctive, uh, why they stay with firms, and what is increasingly important to clients is the quality of the relationship is, and this is all borne out in research, that the lawyers are bringing solutions that they work as a team, that, that lawyer X and lawyer Y on the same client actually know what they're both doing for that client. None of that is a very high bar. And it's been SOP in corporate land forever, but we're increasingly seeing that in law land, which is great. We talked about uh, new law, which encompasses, as, as you point out, a wide variety of businesses. What do you see the role of the big four being in the practice? I, I mean, I've been out there saying that at least pre-pandemic, 
their potential game changer given the size of their capital, their multidisciplinary approach, their contact. But how do you guys see it and how do you see this being impacted by the pandemic? I I totally agree with you, Steve. I mean, if they decide, and that's the critical question, whether what they internally decide their priorities are, if they decide they want to come into the legal vertical, all hell is going to break loose. And I would predict rapidly see the failure of many large law firms, which is, you know, as my bankruptcy professor in law school, you know, told us, look, the, the people aren't shot, you know, the buildings aren't uh, bombed. <laughs> they find other productive uses. And, but we're going to see a lot of lawyers um, earning a lot less money than they are now if the big four come this way. And I don't think there's any regulatory or quote unquote professional ethics rule in the world that could stop them. I think they're all pretty self-evident cartel behavior, which would be struck down at challenge. <laughs> I like the cartel behavior uh, analogy. That's, that's, that's very good. You guys have been at this now for a, for a long time and you've had a lot of success. And Janet, let me start with you. You actually had jobs with real businesses for a while in addition to lawyers and, and yet you've migrated back to this interesting industry of, of lawland as you refer to it. What attracted you back to being, I know you're at Orc for a while, but what attracted you to sort of focus on the legal industry? Well, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I yes, I did work in the real world, um, you know, places like Johnson and Johnson and and with various other uh, big successful corporations. And what's fascinating to me is that Lawland is an enormous industry. Okay, so what are the numbers, Bruce? 400, 500 billion in this country? Well, close to 500 billion a year in revenue to private for-profit law firms. Right. And you know that compares to what is what's automobile seven hundred billion, about seven hundred. So Everybody thinks is, it's an enormous is, industry. It is. This is an enormous industry. It is remarkably insular. And I saw what Bruce was doing in terms of you know working with law firms, and I also realized that the biggest problem law firms have is as they run as a business, they don't need legal advice. They don't need to be taught to be better lawyers. They need to understand how to be better business people. And I saw that as a big fat opportunity because um, there are frankly not a lot of us doing this. So it was exciting. And, and the other thing, lawyers are smart. So you're working with smart people. You're presenting, you know, research based reasons how and why they can do better. So it was it was a really exciting thing to do and it's and we are having a ball and it's fun every day. That's fabulous. And you guys, I know, focus a lot on data uh, and objective information to support what you're advising clients. I'm presuming you found that to be a valuable asset in dealing with lawyers who are inherently and Bruce, you've written on this skeptical paranoid, looking for everything that could go wrong. I presume that's a key ingredient to your success. It is, absolutely. And and I think it's a distinction we have, if I may say so, in the marketplace. It probably goes back to my economics training and Janet's business training. But, you know, I would analogize it, Steve, to 
erosion in nature. It can take a long time of drip, drip, drip of data for lawyers to get it. But eventually, you've got the Grand Canyon. Eventually, it has an impact. And it, it, it's not uh, night and day, but if you demonstrate that certain things work better than others, and they work on a small scale, they'll work on a medium scale, ultimately they'll work on a big scale, you can get there, but plan for a career. Last question, Bruce, I have for you. I, I was listening to you talk on, a, on another podcast, God forbid, and you're talking about sort of your initial experiences and associated Breed Abbott and not understanding how the business could possibly work the way it worked, and that sort of has fueled your career. Repeat that story for for our listeners, because I was I was fascinated by it. So I started as a as a baby associate at Breed Abbott, a, a fabulous firm in the, in the day, and I realized that for all of my education and a, you know a great law school and so forth, I did not comprehend what it meant when people said you know so and so thinks like a lawyer. I could not unpack that to save my life, Steve. I just didn't know what they were talking about. But I did realize that what I found most fascinating about this firm was the way it was managed, and as opposed to the practice of law. And I held on to that thought for many years while I was still a practicing lawyer, until finally I said one day, I got, I got to come back to that. And... I came back to it in the following fashion. I looked around online, and this was early days, although we thought we were so sophisticated with Alta Vista and everything. But it was really early days online. And I looked around, and I did not find any platform discussing the economics of law firms with the sophistication and nuance that I thought they deserved. So I said to myself, well, that looks like white space. Let's see. And you mentioned that we rely heavily on data, and I added that in a braggadocio way that I hope that's a distinction. I hope one of our other distinctions is that we don't have any templates, two-by-two two matrices, no assumptions. We're agnostics, and that makes your life more difficult. You know, Bertrand Russell said a lot of people would rather die than think. Most do. We really, try, we really try to think about the client's individual situation. Well, that's, that's a good explanation for why you guys have been so successful and continue to be successful. I want to thank both of you for spending time with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. And good luck in the rest of this year. May it turn out to be a much better one than last year. Yes, and it's great to see you. Great to chat with you. We should do this more often. We Thank should. You. All we got to do is get on TV. Exactly. Thank you, Steve. We're in your debt. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.